Uh, Mark has a bit more detail when he tells this account. Uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. So the disciples, they've, they've been with Jesus for three years and they've never seen him like this. The last time Jesus took Peter, James and John uh, aside by themselves, it was a few chapters before, when Jesus was transfigured and they saw Jesus in all his glory. Remember the transfiguration with Jesus standing with Moses and Elijah and Peter's so overwhelmed with the moment. He, d- he doesn't want it to end. He says, shall we, you know, shall I put up three tents so we can all stay and carry on this really lovely happening? You know, that's the last time Jesus took them aside. And their expectation as they came to Jerusalem was that it was going to be a glorious victory, that what they'd seen there on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were going to kind of see again, this Messiah was going to come and establish his throne and his kingdom, and they were going to be part of it. And now they see Jesus sorrowful. They see Jesus in agony. And they've never seen him like that before. And I think they're finally beginning to understand that this story is not going to play out in the way that they thought it was. That this great victory that they've been hoping for in Jerusalem, it's not going to play out like that. They're looking at Jesus and they're looking at him praying and they're looking at him in agony and they're thinking, this is, this, is, this is not playing out the way that we thought it was. I think they're finally beginning to understand that he's going to die. And that's, that's not what they were hoping for. That's not what they were expecting. They were expecting the great victory. And of course, there is a great victory, but they don't understand that yet. And I think that's why they're exhausted with sorrow, because they simply don't understand what's going on. But they do understand this is not playing out in the way that they, that they thought it was. And I was reflecting on that and reflecting on you know, their sorrow as they begin to see Jesus heading to the cross and begin to understand why Jesus is heading to the cross. And I was, I was thinking about my own, my own Christian journey and thinking about when we come to faith in Christ, it seems to me there are, there are two things that we really have to understand. And I think there are two things that the disciples have have understood as they spent time with Jesus. And the two things that we have to be convinced of if we're to follow Jesus and take the cost of following Jesus, because it was costly for Jesus to go to the cross, it's costly for us to follow Jesus. So there are two things, and sometimes it doesn't matter which order they come in, and sometimes they come one way around or the other way around, but these are two things that I think we have to be convinced of in order to follow Jesus. The first is... The overwhelming love that God has for us. The extravagant love that God has for us. God's love is a bottomless ocean. Uh, You know, John says in one of his letters, he says, God is love. That's the essence of God's nature. That's the essence of his character. He is love. And you'll never follow Jesus unless you fully understand that God, God loves you so extravagantly. There's absolutely nothing you could ever do to make him love you any less or make him love you any more. It's just, it is, it's, it's just embedded in his character to love. It's, it's, he can't not love 
When he looks on us, when he looks on you, his heart is filled with love. And you'll never follow Jesus unless you fully understand that. But the other thing that you really have to become convinced of is that Jesus was going to the cross because of what I did and because of what you did. God loves us, but actually we sent an innocent man to his death. You know, imagine discovering that you had, you know, you had done something and an innocent person had died as a result of what you'd done. Just imagine the, just the, the grief that you would feel. Imagine the, the heartbreak you would feel, the shame you would feel, the, just the, the agony of knowing that you had done something that had sent an innocent person to their death. Well, we have. We have. We have done something that sent an innocent person to his death. When I became a Christian at the age of 17, that was, that was one of the things that, that just kind of broke my heart, was thinking, Jesus, you went to the cross for me. You went to the cross because of stuff I had done. I, I took a part in nailing you to the cross. I don't know if you remember, it's a long time ago now, if you saw the film The Passion of the Christ, uh, which uh, it's kind of the film you can only, I've only ever seen it once because it, so, it was so painful watching it the first time. But I, but I read afterwards that, um, you know, it was produced by Mel Gibson. And, uh, and I read afterwards you don't, that Mel Gibson has a part in the film. And you don't actually see him, but he's one of the, he's one of the soldiers banging in the nails on, of, of Jesus on the cross. Because he, he just, he's a Roman Catholic, I think, and he, he, he just wanted to kind of express in the film that what Jesus had done, he'd done it for him. And so he's there in the film nailing Jesus to the, to the cross. And in order to follow Jesus, you have to kind of hold, you have to get your head around both of those things. That... God loves us with an overwhelming love that we can never fathom, we can never exhaust. There's, there's nothing that we can ever do that would make God stop loving us. But our sin breaks our relationship. Our sin prevents us from enjoying that love. Our sin prevents us from being in relationship with him. That's why Jesus is heading on this journey. And I think for the, the disciples, they are exhausted from sorrow because they're finally beginning to understand what Jesus is doing. And in a way, we have to, we have to get to that point as well. And it's a point that we don't get to on our own. Um, John's Gospel says that that, that understanding of, of sin is something the Holy Spirit shows us. Some, one of the things that I pray all the time is that the Holy Spirit would bring that conviction to our hearts and lives. Because I can say it from the pulpit and it, and it may not register at all, but when the Holy Spirit puts his, puts his hand on our hearts, then, then, we, then we get it and then our, our hearts are broken that I put you on the cross, Jesus. You were there because of, because of me. But you went willingly because you love me so extravagantly. So the disciples, they're in this place of, of, of sorrow, and, but they will come to a place of victory and a place of understanding and being overwhelmed again by God's love. But they have to kind of pass through the pain 
in order to discover the joy. And I think if you're to follow Jesus, you have to do the same. And it worries me sometimes when people, when people start following Jesus because they've, they've been told that God loves them, but they haven't passed through that point of realising that they nailed Jesus to the cross. You need to have both, you need to have both things together uh, because following Jesus is tough. It's a tough journey. And uh, if you don't understand what Jesus did and how tough it was for him, uh, you may give up on the journey. So, so that's the disciples. I want to go back now and just think about what Jesus is doing. Verse 41, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Verse 44, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The word that's translated anguish is it's, it's, it's being in sheer terror. It's being in sheer terror of what you are facing. That's we've the disciples have never seen Jesus like this. We've never seen Jesus like this. All through the Gospels, we've never seen Jesus like this. And now he's here and he's facing his, his death. And we read other accounts of, of martyrs, of those who've been killed for their faith. And they go to their martyrdom uh, kind of almost serenely. Uh, when you read in Acts about the martyrdom, the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Uh, Stephen isn't in anguish when he's martyred. He's looking up to heaven and he sees heaven opened. He says, Lord, I give you, I give you my spirit. Why is Jesus in such torment as he faces his death. Why is he asking the father, if there's any other way of doing this, can we please do it that way? But not your, my will, but yours be done. We have to understand, again, the character of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the perfect human being. He is fully human and he is fully divine. He is fully human and fully divine. He never sinned. He never got anything wrong. He never spoke a word out of turn. He never uh, lost his temper. He was the perfect human being. But he was a human being. He wept at the death of his friends. He ate, he drank, he uh, suffered hunger and thirst. And humanly, he doesn't want to go to the cross because through his life he has seen many people crucified. It was the, the, the way that the Romans used of deterring people from leading rebellions and uh, crucifixion was very public. People were crucified by the side of the road so that if people went in and out of the towns and cities. They would see people hanging and dying in agony as a deterrent and Jesus has witnessed Many crucifixions and he knows that's what he's going to. And humanly, he doesn't want to do that. Who would? And his human nature is crying out to God, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. But Jesus is not just fully human. He's also fully divine. And the real, and the real reason for his agony and his anguish is not the physical suffering that's coming, but it's the spiritual suffering that's coming it's not just that he's going to be crucified it's that he's going to take on himself the sin of the world this is how much God loves us that he takes on himself the sin of the world 
you know, every, you know, every sin, every, every, every deceit, every deception, every lie, every murder, every depravity, every act of evil that has ever been committed by anybody in the history of the world, all of that Jesus is willingly taking into himself as he prepares to go to the cross. This is the the purest person who's ever lived, the most holy person who's ever lived. He is an entirely innocent man. And yet he takes on himself our our sin. And uh, one of the things we have to understand is that that God is, is holy and he cannot coexist with sin. God's holiness means he cannot coexist with sin. It has to be. It just, can't, it just can't happen. And here is Jesus, the son of God, who by his nature can't tolerate sin, can't coexist with it. And yet he's willingly about to take on himself the sin of the world. No wonder on the cross Jesus cries out in the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, as he takes on himself all of our sin and wrongdoing, it's, it's almost as if he's separated from his father. It's, it's one of those mysteries that we can't quite get our heads around because you can't divide the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. They are indivisible. And yet Jesus, in his human form as he goes to the cross, has this sense of the father turning his back on him. Can you imagine anything more agonising for the Son of God than to have his own Father turn away because as the Father looks on his Son, now he sees our depravity and our shame. This is Jesus, the light of the world. And yet what do we read in verse 53? Jesus says to them, every day I was with you in the temple courts, you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. This is your hour when darkness reigns. Remember, John's gospel tells us that Jesus was the light coming into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the end of the story, that the darkness will never overwhelm the light. The light will always, in the end, overwhelm the darkness. But in these moments, in these hours, Jesus says, darkness reigns. This is the moment when death thinks it's won a victory. Death thinks he's going to triumph as Jesus goes to the cross. And Jesus allows it. This is part of God's story, that God allows these hours of darkness. He allows this seeming triumph. But it can never be a triumph because the one who's gone to the cross doesn't deserve to be there. The one who's on the cross is an innocent man, not dying for his own sins, but taking the hit for the rest of us. The second Adam who's come to the fight, Paul writes, You know, the first Adam sinned and tainted the rest of humanity. And now a second Adam has come to the fight. Jesus, the perfect son of God. And he goes to the cross and he dies for us. So the disciples are in anguish because they begin to understand that Jesus is going to die. And perhaps they're beginning to understand that he's going to die for them. And Jesus is in anguish because... He's facing this terrible physical death, but more than that, this, the agony of taking on himself the sin of the world. Uh, but it's not the end of the story. Uh, one of my other 
Uh, one of my other fav- favourite films is um, Guardians of the Galaxy. Have you, have you seen Guardians of the Galaxy? Maybe some very younger people have seen Guardians of the Galaxy. But it's a um, great film, long story short. Towards the end, the baddie Ronan has to be stopped because he's very, very bad. The only way to stop him is for the Guardians, there are five misfit friends, is to crash their spaceship into his spaceship so they'll all fall to the planet and die. And they realise that's the only, the only way to do it. So they crash their spaceship into Ronan's spaceship and then these five misfit friends, uh, they, kind of, they, they sort of sit in, it's like the chapel really, anyway, they, they sit in a circle and, um, and, and they think they're all going to die. They're kind of plunging to their, plunging to their death. And then one of these misfit friends uh, is a tree called Groot. Go with me. So he's a tree called Groot. And, uh, and as they're sat there, they realise that Groot has started to grow branches. And, uh, and, he, and he just, he kind of gets bigger and bigger and he starts to envelop his friends. And there's this moment where, where suddenly they realise what he's doing. They suddenly realise that he is going to so envelop them and protect them that when this thing crashes to the planet, he will die and they will be saved. And um, Rocket, who's a raccoon, it's a great movie. You've really got to, if you haven't seen it, you've really got to see it. You've got to see it, it's brilliant. So, so Rocket, he's, he's just, he's so sassy. It's, it's, it's a kind of, yeah, he denies the fact, but he's a kind of raccoon. So Rocket, he's incredibly sassy. Anyway, Rocket, he realises what Groot is doing. And there's, there's this moment, because you get this moment in these films where the ones who are going to be saved, they realise the sacrifice that's about to be made and they object. You know, it's like we saw at the Last Supper when Jesus says he's going to die and Peter says, no, 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 you're not going to die. You're not going to die. And there's that moment of, and Rocket, and it, it, they suddenly realise, no, you can't, you can't do this. You can't sacrifice yourself to save us. There's this moment of objection and then there's this moment of acceptance where they realise that actually they need to allow this person to make this sacrifice. And that's what Groot does. He kind of surrounds them in this huge kind of ball of branches and trees. And then, I'm sorry, you're not, I've spoiled the ending now. No, but never mind. Uh, so another spoiler alert. So uh, a little late. So anyway, it crashes to earth. And sure enough, Groot is, you know, he's obliterated. He's just, there's just twigs and leaves on the ground. But, the, but his friends are all, he's all saved. And the, the reason I really love the story of Guardians of the Galaxy is because they think, they think he's dead. They think they've lost him. But he hasn't. There's a little baby Groot. He's like a little shoot. And he's in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. So you've got to watch both of them. So, so they kind of think, so it's just... You know, as I said, you know, God's story emerges in the stories that we tell ourselves because there's death and there's resurrection. You know, Groot dies and there's baby Groot for film two. He's so cute. But anyway, Jesus dies, but it's not the end of the story. He sacrifices himself for us, but it's not the end of the story. And we know it's not. The disciples, they didn't quite, they didn't know yet it wasn't the end of the story. They're still caught up in the, the pain and the, and the darkness of it all. But there, there is a victory. It may be darkness for a few hours, but the light will shine again. And that's the hope that we have, that one person died so that we might live. We have to understand that 
that we put him there. We nailed him to the cross. But he went willingly and he went because he loves us. Because he loves us. He did it for us. And that's why we're 2,000 years later, we're still here. And we're still worshipping this God because that's what he did. And our, you know, our, our task is to share that good news with others. That's why we're here as a chapel community. It's not just to meet together, it's to go out and to, to tell others that there's this God who loves them so much they'll never be able to understand how much he loves them. But they do also need to understand that they put him on a cross. He died for them. But he has life in all its fullness in return. So let's, let's pray for a few moments.